Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so uh, let's just walk through it. It started off when they were released. Who is they? Well, if we've been following along in the book of Acts, uh, they is Peter and John. Peter and John were regular guys, ordinary fishermen who were called out of their livelihoods to be followers of Jesus. These two stand out as they are with Jesus during some of the crucial times in his life. Peter and John were there at the Mount of Transfiguration when God the Father confirms from the heavens that this is my son. Peter and John were the ones sent to the city to prepare the final Passover meal or the last supper. Supper. Peter and John are there when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he is arrested. It is Peter and John who follow the arrested Jesus into the palace of the high priest. It is Peter and John who race to see the empty tomb. It's interesting, by the way, Matthew records that Peter went. John records both Peter and John were there. And John also makes it plain that Peter got a head start and he still beat him there on foot. Don't mistake the scriptures for not being funny. John wanted everyone to know that he can outrun Peter. And now it is Peter and John who are carrying forward after Jesus is gone, proclaiming the news about Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's the they. It says they were released. What from? Well, the day prior, if you remember from last week, Peter and John had been walking into the temple and Peter heals a lame beggar in the name of Jesus while on the way in. This draws attention, of course, which was its purpose. And Peter proceeds to preach. Now, Peter had been preaching for about three hours at the time they interrupted him and were arrested. Now, I've seen you all. Your legs start to bounce at 28 minutes of preaching. It starts to do this number right here. Yeah, you start thinking about, you know, going back for seconds on the communion because your belly is starting to rumble and your bladder starts to give out on you, 28 minutes. And although you wouldn't say it out loud that the Jesus discussion is going on too long, I can see, I stand in the back, right? I can see you checking the faces of the guys around you to see if you have any leg-bouncing allies. Somebody else who's like, this is going on too long. 28 minutes, that's you. We try to keep things around 25 or so. Peter, is it three hours? Had to be interrupted. Eventually, Peter and John are arrested for preaching in the temple, specifically about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, they were kept overnight after being arrested. Jewish law at the time, not the Old Testament law, but just, just Jewish law, was to not hold the trial before the council that late in the day or that quickly after an arrest. There was wisdom in this. It helped them to, from making rash decisions, quick and unfair judgments. Now, that's ironic, of course, because they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night and tried and, you know, proceeded there. Uh, a pure violation of the wisdom uh, that otherwise would have been inherent in that law. Acts continues, they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, I got 20 bucks that says you wouldn't react to the story that Peter and John are about to tell their friends in the same way that their friends do. Do you ever have a friend or like a, a couple of friends that just kind of disappeared on you? 
they left one day, they were supposed to come back that night, they didn't show up, and then like, they just kind of showed up the next day with some kind of wild story. That's the position that these two guys are in. Basically, their story is, you know, we were just walking around, minding our own business, and Pete heals the lame guy outside the temple. You know the guy we're talking about, right? And then we picked a fight with a bunch of guys that killed our friend and told them to change their ways. And then we got arrested and held overnight, and the bigwigs told us to stop talking about Jesus. We said, you know, we'll do what we want. That's kind of the story they're telling. In response, the rulers and the elders said, basically, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, who was the council that they were uh, in front of, was kind of a pickle here. Everybody had seen that lame beggar, right? The guy was 40 years old, hadn't been able to walk since birth, and here he was jumping around, praising God. Peter had said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And that's what happened. There was no debate there. If you look how the scripture records the story, no one was debating whether the man was healed. The Sanhedrin didn't even attempt to deny it. So what did they do? They do what a lot of people do, even today. They told Peter and John, just stop talking about Jesus. It's pretty ridiculous, isn't it, right? I mean, it was the truth. They weren't even denying that the miracle happened. But the truth of the matter wasn't relevant. The fact that they had all seen a miracle done in the name of the man that they had crucified two months ago wasn't relevant. They denied what their eyes had seen, what their ears had heard, and what their logic followed, and simply told Peter and John to shut up. We don't want to hear it. We have our own beliefs, our own lives, and what you're saying would change that. Shut up and don't tell anybody else. Now, Peter and John were ultimately released, you know, because although they were irritating to the Sanhedrin, they weren't really guilty of anything. It's not a crime to heal a man. Our portion of Scripture continues in verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, this is the people that Peter and John are talking to once they've come back and told them what happened, the believers lifted their voices together to God. That's prayer. And the prayer, they said, starts with, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Don't treat those words too casually. Lord, ruler, the highest and most powerful king, the one to whom we owe allegiance, the one that we serve. Most of you, I think, would agree with those words. Yes, Jesus is Lord. God is sovereign. I agree. Remember that time, just, you know, it was a minute or so ago, when we were all kind of thinking how goofy that Sanhedrin was? How foolish they were that they heard the truth but basically ignored it to serve their own agenda? I want you to consider the possibility that there are folks in the church today, globally and you know, even here, whose mouths wouldn't deny Jesus but whose lives completely ignore him because they have their own agenda. See, there's a difference between having a Jesus is Lord bumper sticker and living a life where Jesus is actually Lord. Now, some of you have a buddy Jesus. Good buddy Jesus kind of hangs out with you. Some of you have a Santa Jesus who you kind of ask, ask for stuff and he hopes that he delivers. Some of you have like a cool life coach Jesus who's got like hip glasses and a sweet, well-tended beard and who's like fantastically quotable in most cases. Except for those annoying times where he's talking about hell and money and bearing your cross. And the truth is that there are aspects of each of those, you know, Jesus characters, the buddy, the Santa, the life coach Jesus. There are each of those that show a little bit of the character of Jesus. But sometimes we pick the characteristics that we like and we submit to those and discard the rest because, you know, we can handle it from there. We're generous like that. We like to share the kingdom. We'll take this stuff. Jesus can have the rest. But we must not ever... Take Jesus off his throne. We are to submit to his will for his kingdom to be done here as it is in heaven. 
Uh, it's, I, some of you saw this already. I posted it on Facebook this week. I, I was thinking about a, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, and, and in the book by C.S. Lewis, some children crawl through a wardrobe and they enter into a magical world where there's this character named Aslan. And one of the children is asking about this, this King Aslan character. Uh, and there's a talking beaver. And he says, you know, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, who was one of the kids. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's a pretty good description of Jesus. He's not safe. And trying to usurp his throne is dangerous business. But he is Lord. And that's good news. You see, if I'm going to pray to somebody, it better be the person that has the power to do it. If Jesus is my protector and deliverer and savior... He better be powerful enough to fulfill those obligations. I want a Lord. And he is. And he's good. He's the king, I tell you. They continued in their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, that's King David, you know, David and Goliath, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this is interesting because they are quoting uh, Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 was written over 1,000 years prior to when they were praying. That's a long time to hold on to something to pray about. What does it have to do with anything that they're talking about this? Remember how the prayer started? Sovereign Lord. Through this psalm, they're reminding themselves of their place in the grand story of God. They are encouraging themselves that the persecution that they have endured and will continue to endure is under the guidance of a righteous, holy, perfect creator. It is through the sovereignty of God that a psalm that represented a real and prescient situation to the people of God 3,000 years ago would point to and inform us about the situation of the early church 1,000 years after it was written. Watch how they connect this. This is, it continues in verse 27. So they've taken this chunk out of Psalm 2. And now he's going to kind of explain why they're thinking about that particular section in their current day. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's our anointed part of Psalm 2, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Yeah, that looked much better when I was looking at it on my computer. Uh, If you can kind of get the arrows, right? So when they're talking about Gentiles, think Romans. We're talking about the peoples that plot in vain. The, the word for peoples there is a Jewish word. It refers to Jewish peoples. Those are the Jews that plotted against Jesus. When we think of kings, you can think of Herod and Pilate, just like verse 27 talked about, and rulers. Think about the Sanhedrin that, they were, that Jesus was in front of, and they just left. Why did the Gentiles rage? Like I said, Romans, peoples plot in vain. Those are the Jews. This all came together against the Lord and his anointed ones. See how that fits? A thousand years before then. That scripture fit what was going on in King David's life, and it also fits what happened in the life of Christ, and also points to what will continue in the life of those uh, of the disciples. It's interesting here too because the word Messiah comes from transliterating the Hebrew word for anointed, and the word Christ comes from taking that word anointed and translating it into Greek. So we think of Jesus Christ anointed. It's cool how that all connects. And in this time, just as in the time of David, the Gentiles did rage and the peoples did plot in vain and the kings of the earth and the rulers did gather together against Jesus. They keep praying, for truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Is that just a coincidence then that this psalm reflects both situations? No. It's both history and prophecy. Was the persecution of Jesus a surprise? Just kind of lucky that this matched up? No. God said that this would happen. And with his hand has caused it to do so. And they, the believers in the first century, can be comforted with this scripture after rebuking the threat of the Sanhedrin because through this they are reminded that God is in control. And we, the believers today, can be comforted because through this we can be reminded that God is in control. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's interesting to read what follows in Psalm 2, by the way. What they didn't include in their prayer was Psalm 2, 4. And it says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All these people that were plotting against his anointed. Why? Why does God laugh at those who are plotting against his anointed? Remember the words earlier, they plot in vain. Proverbs 69 says, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's plans will not be thwarted. The Bible is clear that there are some things that God predestines to happen. And this makes some of us uncomfortable. What about our free will? What about our choices? Are we mere puppets for God to use as He wishes? Boy, if it were only that easy. I prayed for that. Use me. Send me. Do your will, not mine. If only it were that easy. You know, some of us are concerned in that arena with the very thing that we're asking for. The only reason I can think of to fight God for my own sovereignty is because I don't trust Him to do a better job with my life than I will. And that seems simply misguided to me. If He weren't capable of doing something better than me, He wouldn't be God. He'd be more like my brother. Now certainly, I would reject the teaching that says God predestines everything, including who will be saved and who will not. It is simply inconsistent with His character. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God wants us all to be saved. It would be silly for, them if, for him to just choose that some people wouldn't be. It also seems silly for all this call to repentance business in the Bible if what they really mean is repent and be baptized and you might be saved. Because the scripture was pretty clear that you will be saved. That being said, we have to get comfortable understanding that we have free will, but that God can and will use us according to his purposes. That's an important thought when it comes to prayer, isn't it? Are we generally asking for God to intervene to reverse the effects of the natural world around us? Aren't we asking for him to use his mighty hand to conquer something that we cannot conquer? Or to heal something we cannot heal to bring hope where there isn't any? We want the free will of the man who is beating his wife to be violated, don't we? So that he'll stop. We want God to stick his nose into the natural progress of cancer so that it might be healed, don't we? In that light, after all this talk of sovereignty, watch what the believers ask for in this prayer. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Boldness. Holy Spirit-inspired courage and confidence. These guys were just threatened by the highest authority of their people and basically told to shut up. This is the same group who is willing to crucify Jesus. They are heavy-handed when they want to be. By all counts, 
These believers remain under a significant threat that will play out for the next 30 years in Jerusalem. When I was in elementary school, I got beat up by a girl. Go ahead and let that soak in for just a minute. This was not just any girl, all right? This was Amber Urias. She had big arms like the Incredible Hulk. And if you were to take like a topography of the schoolyard, the muscles in her right arm would be foothills. That's what we're talking about. Anyway, I don't know what predicated this particular incident. Probably too much tetherball on her part. But one day at school, she grabs one of my arms with both of hers, you know, and then proceeds to spin me around and around and around. It's the kind of thing you do to little kids to try to scare them or make them throw up. You guys have done it. And if you remove, yeah, around, 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 I just kept spinning and spinning and spinning. And if you remove it from the context that it was a girl essentially swinging me around like a licorice rope, the spinning itself was kind of fun, you know, until she decided to let go. You know what happens, this, 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 and then, bam, my face smacked right into the pavement, took a couple bounces and settled near a rock and busted my lip open. A teacher grabbed me up, had me try to put a hand, you know, kind of this to keep from looking like there was an injured felon scrambling through the schoolyard on the way to the nurse's office. Um, and so, and then I made my way out. Now, one of the things that did not occur to me at the time in my prayers was to be bold in my proclamation of the gospel to Amber Urias. I may have prayed for my pain to go away. I probably prayed for my mouth to be healed. I prayed that somehow the rest of the playground had missed the whole incident. I may have prayed to be protected from further persecution, especially from, you know, other ladies. Uh, I may have prayed for a hedge of protection around my friends who were still out on the playground with her, the armed beast of the blacktop. <laughs> I may have even thrown out an imprecatory prayer, you know, Lord, get Amber your eyes. <laughs> get her. You see, when we face trials and persecution, those are the things we pray for, Right? Protection for ourselves, protection for others, healing, relief, justice. But these guys, they prayed for boldness. Help us to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they know that they are weak in the world, uneducated, persecuted, threatened. Where they are weak in the world, God is strong. The concern of these believers in this moment is not for their own safety, even though it is at risk. The concern is that they be able to continue to do the work of God's kingdom even in these times of trial. We are in danger sometimes of the focus and perspective of our prayers getting out of balance. Let's, let's try something. So think about what you prayed for this morning. Maybe what you prayed for yesterday and earlier in the week. Rolling around in your mind. Everybody got it? Now, I want you to answer this question. If all of your prayer requests were granted, how much would the kingdom of God have grown? If God answered every one of your prayers right now, what would be the impact on his kingdom? Uh, think of it another way. So if God would answer all your prayers right now, whose kingdom would be furthered more? God's kingdom or your kingdom? Now, don't misunderstand me. God is concerned with the minutiae in your everyday life. Luke 12, 7 reminds us that even the hairs of your head are still numbered. If he didn't care, he wouldn't count. We know from Matthew 6 that we are not to waste time worrying about our needs of food and clothing as God will provide. We should pray for that provision. And certainly James 5 tells us that if anyone is sick, that we should pray for them. 
And God is a loving God, and he listens to your prayers, and he is faithful. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. But is it possible that we can get caught up so much in asking God to maintain the comfort, stability, and desires of our lives, our kingdom, that we neglect to pray for and seek to be used for the work and furtherance of his kingdom? The issue is one of perspective and balance. See, on the other side of this life, for those that love and serve God with a repentant heart, all pain will be turned to joy. All fear will be replaced with hope. Everything that's dark will be light. All worries will be gone. All despair will be gone. All uncertainty and weariness and stress and heartache and sin and evil will be destroyed by the unstoppable, unwavering, inexhaustible goodness and love and glory of God. If we were a church that said amen, that would have been the time to do it. <laughs> He's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the finish line, right? That's the promise. And that's an important perspective to be reminded of. What's on the other side? You know, I get a, I get a nervous stomach sometimes. Uh, and it's not just like flitters or mild discomfort. It's like ultra-nauseous, can't stand up for more than 15 seconds without lying back down, nervous stomach. Uh, it happens when I speak in front of a large group, you know, like this one. I've had it happen during some particularly tense family circumstances. It happened when we were broadcasting uh, live from the path, our, our radio show from a music festival, and there were some faith healers that were like hanging around our broadcast booth trying to heal my friend Pants of his MS. And those guys just creeped me out. And it totally, it made me so nervous. It took me out for like four hours. Like I couldn't broadcast. I was holed up in a, uh, like a camp bunk somewhere. It was 100 degrees. It was terrible. But I couldn't function. I was so, my stomach was so nervous because of that incident. And I remember it happened one time when I was asked to come and run sound for a band. Uh, after the show started, there was this high-pitched ringing sound that kept showing up in the speakers. And no matter what I did, I, I couldn't get rid of it. And I just started getting this nervous feeling because I was, I was failing, and I knew it. I, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. They had brought me in to help them out, and I couldn't figure out the issue. And, and it just overtook me, and I, I couldn't stand at the soundboard anymore. I, I had to sit down. And eventually, um, my brother came in, and I had to leave. And then the issue still wasn't fixed. It just totally wiped me out. And I remember sitting down at the time and I was praying and I was praying and I said, God, just take this nervous feeling away because it's silly. It seems so silly. It was like my body was, was turning against me, you know? The thing is, is I knew enough in my mind that none of this was a big deal. I knew it. I knew that with time I would, I would be able to figure out that sound issue. It could only be a certain number of things. I knew that in the grand scheme of things that the guys in the band weren't blaming me and that we were using cheap equipment and it was just a small show in a tiny bar that no one would remember a week from now. And no one there knew me anyway or knew that I had some level of responsibility to fix it. But it just would not go away. And no matter how much I knew in my mind that everything was fine, my body just would not cooperate. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed each of these times like this happens to me actually quite often and each of the times I pray and I pray for it to go away and it never did and it still happens but here's what I know I know that God is sovereign and I know that Romans 8:28 says that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and I know that 2 Corinthians 12:10 says that for the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And these things remind me that there is a bigger picture. And it is framed by the fact that God is good and sovereign, and I can take comfort in that. And I am able to do so because I am part of the kingdom of God. And I am reminded that not everyone gets that same comfort. That not everyone has that same comfort. See, it's natural to have a worldly focus because we're worldly beings. God knows that. He created it. But this is not our forever home. And these are not our forever problems. And the same is true for the people who are hurting that you have been praying for. It's true for your kids. It's true for your coworkers. It's true for your friends. It's true for the people who need healing that you've been praying for. It's true for the people who are bullied and persecuted and mistreated that you've been praying for. We need to make sure that we don't become so focused on trying to pray away the impact of sin and sickness in this world that we forget the promises of the world that's to come. And that is the kingdom of God that ultimately conquers all those things that we're praying against. So what are we supposed to pray for? Like I said, don't get me wrong, right? Prayers for healing and protection and provision are not wrong, and they're certainly not selfish. God delights in his people. And Matthew seven eleven reminds us that he likes to give good things to those who ask him. In his example prayer, Jesus includes praying for daily bread. But we are also here to serve the king. The gracious, loving, just king who through the spread of his kingdom offers internal healing and protection and provision. So pray for boldness. Pray that in the face of threats, threats that may come in the form of distractions or intimidation or just plain fear, that we would be bold in speaking the word of God. That our prayer perspective would always include that which is beyond ourselves. That we would see clearly ways to further the kingdom of God and to boldly pursue them in spite of those things that hinder. Section of scripture ends and say, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they ask for again? Boldness. What did they get? Boldness. Does God do that? Yes. Yes, God does that. They prayed for boldness. God gave them boldness. He absolutely does that. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It doesn't get any clearer than that. So far in Acts, one of the consistent themes we can see is that the Holy Spirit shows up in response to prayer. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God progresses. And it is through that power that we're able to throw off everything that hinders and see the world around us shake and be transformed. See, we are no different than Peter and John or the other members of that first century church that were experiencing this thing. And the God that answered their prayer is the same one that we serve today. And the Holy Spirit that filled them is the same Holy Spirit that fills us. And Jesus was anointed as king then and remains king today. And he's good He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray.